It intertwines with many conversations that our campuses are having related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and especially belonging. And I think fostering environments where students feel like they can disclose. I think that's really step one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and I work on the campus partnerships team here at World Strides. Today, we're diving into a very hot and very timely topic in 2024, accessibility and study abroad. We'll be talking about how we as education abroad practitioners can best support students with disabilities and what higher education institutions as a whole can do to enhance support systems and practices to foster a more inclusive study abroad experience for these students. It's my honor to welcome a distinguished guest onto the podcast to explore this topic with us. Dr. Sarah Easler is the Assistant Dean of International Programs and Partnerships in the Haslam School of Business at the University of Tennessee. I know she has spent a lot of time thinking about this topic, and I can't imagine a better person to help us unpack all things related to students with disabilities and study abroad. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Sarah Easler, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you please start us off by sharing a bit about your background, your career trajectory, and what you are up to these days as Assistant Dean of International Programs and Partnerships at UT? Well, background, I am from South Carolina originally. I am a graduate triple alumnus from the University of South Carolina. I would say that I was one of those students, particularly as an undergrad, especially as an undergrad, that had really not a great idea of what I wanted to do or be when I grew up. And I was pursuing a degree in journalism and mass comm and kind of decided second semester of senior year that I, I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted my everyday life and existence to be. But I did know that I needed to pay the bills, and so I wanted to graduate and felt like mass comm, communication degree, that's a great degree, right? Those are skills that you can use in, in literally any career path or, or whatnot. And it wasn't like I had some epiphany of what I did want to do. So, it, it you know, changing didn't make a lot of sense. But I was a very lucky young person in the sense that I was hired into a position that really introduced me to international education, specifically in the field of medical science and research. And it really just opened my eyes to the ways in which we are sharing information across the globe, particularly among academic institutions, and really got me fired up and got me a lot of experience working across borders for the preparation of academic medical conferences. And so I gained a lot of really strong and important administrative skills in that, but then also sort of found that I really liked this international thing. I thought it was fun. It allowed me to travel, which I obviously loved. And so there were pieces of it that I just thought were really great. And after five years of that, I was hired into the business school at the University of South Carolina in international business, where programming really was not my job at all. That was not, I was hired in an administrative position exclusively in the Department of International Business. And I was so fortunate to have an amazing mentor in that space that really just continued to nurture and foster this idea of international and international business. And he gave me this amazing opportunity. I found this fledgling little faculty-led program one day and I was like, what is this thing 
that's over here that sometimes I see we have billing for, sometimes we don't. What is this thing? And he says, you know, well, it's a program we run in Central Europe. Sometimes we have enough students. Most of the time we don't. It's kind of just this thing that comes and goes from time to time. And uh, he said, you know, actually, if you wanted to take it on, you could travel with the program. We pay for you to travel with the students if you got it. But, you know, you got to like, you got to do your actual job first. So this would be like a side project. And I was like, mm. all I heard in that sentence was free travel. <laughs> and so I did. I got the students, traveled with them for the first time. And man, I was in love. Traveling and working with students really was never on my radar, but we just had such a great time. I got to experience it alongside them, which was really fun and inspiring. And from there, it was you know, one program, and then it was two, and then it was 21. And before I knew it, my, you know, that same mentor was like, let's be honest with ourselves. This is your job now. And so I became the director of the program for our faculty-led and for the international business uh, graduate and undergraduate programs at the University of South Carolina. And so that's the work I was doing. In the meantime, during all of that, I, uh, that same mentor was like, so when are you getting that master's degree? And then mid-stride in that master's, he's like, so when are you getting your PhD? And so he really sort of, you know, nudged me very much along. And I'm eternally grateful for having such amazing guidance from him. We're still very connected today even. And I just, I'm so grateful that someone was there to sort of tell me which direction to go and what I, you know, why aren't you thinking about this or what are you doing here? And so he was really critical to my career. And then of course I came to Tennessee and had the great opportunity to start a program from scratch there that didn't exist. The Office of International Programs and Study Abroad was brand new. Um, and so I was brought on at UT to to build it. And who gets that kind of opportunity? Again, you know, the the lucky, the lucky turn of events. I mean, no one gets to start from scratch, a brand new office, a brand new initiative. I was very, very fortunate to get to do that. And and then same story just sort of grew from there. And last year I became the assistant dean for the college and international programs and partnerships. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sarah. I'd like to open our conversation today by asking you to share some basics for our folks who may be newer to learning about accessibility as it relates to study abroad. What, for example, is an accommodation and how common are disabilities as a whole? So an accommodation is probably, if people are working in higher ed or in, in education of any space, they've probably heard this term accommodation before. And really, it's just a modification or alteration of the environment, of the content, of the delivery method to open up access for an individual who may need, you know, in most cases in the classroom, we hear about additional time or testing accommodations, a quieter space, you know, those kinds of things, in addition to the ways in which accommodation can be related to a physical disability, increasing access to physical spaces on your campus or in your classroom. That term is probably one that people have heard before. Often what's attached to that is this idea of what is considered a reasonable accommodation. That word reasonable appears a lot in the legislature related to accommodation. All of that in higher ed especially is determined typically through an office of student disability services where they would evaluate. A student must first request, uh, which is a big difference between higher ed and K through 12 education. A student must request accommodation and then they're typically evaluated off of medical documentation that the student presents to that office. 
Um, and then from there, reasonable accommodation is determined by that Office of Student Disability Services. So the determination of accommodation isn't typically ever made. I'm not aware of any instance where it's made by an academic unit or department or even a study abroad office. That is really driven by the professionals in your disability services area where they have the credentials to evaluate the medical diagnoses as well as the recommended accommodation by a physician. So, Sarah, you touched upon the importance of that, the Office of Disability Services on Minicampus. Do you have any pro tips for our listeners uh, who are education abroad practitioners about partnering with an Office of Disability Services? How can we best work together? Get to know that office before you need them. That's my greatest piece of advice, right? You know, so many times on campus we're in that, you know, reactionary mode. Uh, this challenge has presented itself and, you know, now I need to figure out who who in the world is this contact and where exactly do they live on campus? And, oh, by the way, we don't have a prior relationship, so I have to start from scratch. And that just slows the process down, right? And I think that for any of us in, in, in education in general, not necessarily just international ed, knowing who these people are on campus, who are your colleagues, who are your content experts on campus, you know, get to know them early and visit with them with some frequency because they're going to be the experts on the regulation, you know, what is required and what is reasonable. They're going to have the greatest sense of what that looks like from a legislative standpoint. They're also going to have incredible guidance for what's going on in the field, in their field, right? We think about the way that we connect across international ed. They have their own set of, you know, colleagues around the globe and around the country that they can connect with to help with resources. And so helping them to sort of know that you're there, you're interested, you care, you want to be a resource to students, um, because that's going to help information flow in both directions, right? Your challenge presents itself, you know exactly who you're calling. It's a familiar face. It's someone that you've built a trusting relationship with and vice versa. The student might present the disability and desire to study abroad to them and not to you. And so the same thing happens, right? They go to to that professional on your campus and then that professional knows who to contact back. And so it really creates that pathway of, of communication and disclosure from students because one challenge that I have seen more than once in our programs is that that idea of disclosure is one that sometimes I never hear. Sometimes a student never discloses that they have any sort of disability or, or accommodation. Sometimes I hear it too late in the process, which is very hard to maneuver sometimes. You know, sometimes it's it's not that big of a deal and we can sort of mitigate fairly quickly. Other times it presents a number of challenges that if I had just had forewarning, we could have really wrapped our arms around the situation much more quickly and effectively. It just improves outcomes if we have that multiple points and avenues of disclosure. So my tip would be make friends. <laughs> make friends. You know, I love what you said about, you know, the communication flowing both ways and us really supporting one another. I think it's really great advice. You know, I want to ask you a broad question. Sarah, in your experience, what are some of the unique challenges that students with disabilities face when they embark on a study abroad journey? That's a complicated question because it really depends. It depends on what exactly is the disability or accommodation that we're working with. It depends on the type of programming that the student is interested in. In many cases, it is a case-by-case basis. There are certainly some that, you know, as I mentioned, will easily move through the process and it's not and it's not terribly disruptive. There are others that are, are more complicated and so it's quite situational. For example, if a student was visiting a host institution for a full semester, 
you know, the challenges that are presented there are often shared with the partner institutions. So what accommodations do they have? What kind of services and resources do they have? If it's instead a faculty-led or itinerant program that has them doing all kinds of things that might be remote or outside of cities and, you know, in areas where, you know, we might not be able to control every single situation, that's really different kind of planning that has to occur there. And so it really is very much situational as to what is the kind of program and what what is the kind of accommodation that the student is seeking or needing. So I would encourage anybody that's been presented with a disclosure to, to really consider what is the type of programming. Hopefully you're hearing about this disclosure very early on in the process and the student is coming to you because they want your help identifying and matching to the right program for them. That's best case scenario, right? You learn about it early on, what exactly are our needs here and how, and you have plenty of time to do adequate research and to guide the student along their path. That's certainly ideal situation, right? Alternatively, though, it's, we often hear about it after the fact and it's instead, how, how do we sort of match and, and best mitigate? Sarah, I want to lift up that you are Dr. Easler. And your terminal degree included a dissertation titled A Litigation Analysis of the Extraterritoriality of U.S. Federal Laws and International Education. What a fascinating topic. Clearly, one of your areas of expertise is around litigation and its relationship to students with disabilities and the responsibilities related to discrimination. Could you unpack that for us and share a bit about how you came to be interested in this area of professional practice? My interest in this is is facing in both directions. Certainly understanding what are the students' rights and how can we be supportive to students is sort of the the front-facing, the access piece is what is really interesting to me and got me on this path. What I discovered, however, in this is from an institutional perspective, you know, if I put on my other hat, right, my student services hat is equity access for the students. And I think that many of us would share that. I'm not sure why we would be in this field if we didn't share those same singles. My other hat, however, is that of an administrator of the university. And so understanding what is our role and responsibility and also risk of litigation. And so those are that's the other side of it that I found to be really complex. And there's not this really obvious path or roadmap as to what exactly is our role and responsibility, particularly when we can't control the environment entirely. And That's where I think that I became most interested is how do we navigate these statutes that are in place where guidance can change often, sometimes based on administration and how they interpret the guidance. All of our federal funding is tied to compliance through the Office of Civil Rights and and it presents some some spaces that are quite challenging to, to think through. You know, we all want to be accommodating, and yet we're sending students to destinations that have ancient structures and probably not always easy or quick access to elevators or ramps. In the case of a physical you know, disability, and those, however, if we look at the data, really represent um, a small portion of the students that are going abroad, and instead those quote-unquote hidden disabilities that really do often require disclosure we can't control all of those environments. We can't control the statutes abroad. We can't control the behaviors of our partners. We can just hope that they're good partners and that we've nurtured a relationship of, of access and accommodation. And so I think that was the piece of it where as an administrator, 
I wanted to really understand what was our risk and responsibility in this. I mentioned previously that the statutes use this really ambiguous language around reasonable accommodation, and yet reasonable is never defined. And what is reasonable to one person or institution may not be reasonable to another. And and that is a really very gray space that we all need to think through and recognize what exactly do we determine to be reasonable accommodation. And we talked about important partners on campus and this certainly our offices of disability services are one general counsel probably needs to be another because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're doing what's right by the student, but we have to also consider institutional risk as part of that as well. And, and so those, those are issues that are very often in alignment, but not always. And so it's, it's a complicated issue and, and one without direct answers in many cases. Easy solutions. Yeah, the, you're, you have me thinking about the, the meaning of the word reasonable and how that can vary from person to person. And, and there's, there can be so much interpretation there. And some of these could require an incredible amount of cost. And so you, you think about, well, who determines what is a reasonable cost? And truly, in, in any given academic year, in any given budget situation, at any given institution, right, this, this, the variety of available financial resources is varied. And so that, that idea of reasonable accommodation is, is certainly a gray space that is not clearly defined in the statutes. And who gets to make that decision, I imagine. And so that leads me to my next question, Sarah. And it's another broad one, another big one. How can higher education institutions proactively enhance support systems or practices to facilitate a more inclusive study abroad experience for students with disabilities? I think a lot of it comes down to, it intertwines with many conversations that our campuses are having related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and especially belonging. And I think fostering environments where students feel like they can disclose. Um, I think that's really step one because we have available resources, right? We, we have people who are professionals in all of these areas and we can bring ourselves together to problem solve to the best of our ability but we can't do it if we don't know that that's an issue. And many students, regardless of ability status, many students see study abroad as an ability to escape. And sometimes that means they're escaping turmoil at home. They, they want a little bit of escapism. Oftentimes I have heard from students that disclosed later that they had this disability with an available accommodation for any other circumstance on campus. But for this one semester, they didn't want to have to have that lens or that stigma or that identity, and they didn't disclose and for what was a less than optimal outcome. And so that environment of having it be a welcoming space and one where people feel like they can come talk to you and that you are an advocate for them. I really think that that's step one. And having those relationships across campus where it really is that someone feels like they can, they know who to call when there is a, a situation that requires more than one set of eyes. You mentioned the importance of early disclosure. What are some other needs that education abroad professionals might find it easy to get tripped up when it comes to working with students? And what words of advice would you have for how we can best create a climate that's conducive to students disclosing their needs early? And what other advice would you have? I think reminding our students more than once, you know, many of us, if we're teaching in the classroom, we have a syllabus where day one, syllabus day, we talk about 
don't forget to disclose to me and to the Office of Disability Services any accommodation for which you might be eligible. We do that really frequently in the classroom. I don't know that we do it as frequently with our students otherwise. And so thinking about how you can encourage your advisors and otherwise to almost have it as a as a disclaimer, you know, not every student is going to need to hear it, but it opens an invitation. And perhaps even the student might not have even been thinking about that just yet, right? Study abroad can be a really overwhelming experience for some of our students and the volume of questions that they have can be large and intimidating. And so Maybe it's not that they're choosing not to disclose. Maybe that's just not entered their thought pathway just yet, right? And so kind of reminding students that this is an area of importance and that, you know, we we need to think about it and we can help you with that. So how could we introduce that as just a reminder for appointments? And, you know, I say that now we need to be reminding with more frequency. We need to be thinking about this. And so reminding ourselves to have that reminder is is even something that needs to happen and I think, too, the the ways in which we can just build relationships and have them feel like it's a safe space to say these things is, it's really step one. I think also for professionals who might be encountering some of these um, situations and challenging challenges, especially, you know, oftentimes if we think about who is frontline with our students every day doing the high volume of student advising and appointments and that sort of thing, Many times they can be our younger professionals, newer professionals to the field who are in those advising roles, even sometimes student peer advisors that are in those roles. And so having them a pathway for elevating the situation, this comes up in a conversation, it might feel overwhelming to that person, elevate. It's it's a team effort, right? We need to remember that it is a team effort. And so I want to make sure that anybody in our team, the minute that someone discloses something, if it's easy, simple, and we can solve it really quickly. That's wonderful. We probably need to catalog it just so that we're following up to ensure that everything is going as it should. Um, Some of them might be far more complicated. And so helping even our advisors to understand that you don't have to have the answers to this. And we say this every single day to every single advisor and to every single student, you don't have to have every single answer in that moment. And that's okay. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say, this is an interesting situation. I'm going to need to do some more homework on this, and we're probably going to need to connect to some other resources. This is the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. And so helping advisors to realize that like, you don't have to have all the answers in the moment. I don't have all of the answers in the moment. I did an entire dissertation on this. I don't have all of the answers on this, and I'm going to need to connect to resources as well. And I can tell you right now, my very first phone call is going to be my my friends and colleagues in disability services because that's exactly what needs to happen. And so reminding them to do the exact same things that I would do in this situation, and it's let's build a team, let's collaborate. Yeah, I love what you said about you know those of us in leadership positions making sure that our team members have the resources and training and knowledge to be able to advise students and and knowing when they don't know the answer and being okay with that. I think that's really important. Well, it's okay. It's okay to not know all of the answers all the time in the moment. From what I hear on our team and what I'm hearing echoed across from others in the field right now is that students are advocating for themselves more these days in terms of their disabilities now more than ever before. One might say that Sigma is decreasing, which is a positive step. What would you add here and what other evolutions or trends are you noticing? I think it's absolutely true that we're seeing more students advocate for themselves and having the stigma removed for disclosure, which is that's 
self-advocacy is always something positive, I think, particularly because I think that in the past, so many students did feel that stigma related to either their disability or health situation that has hindered their ability to be really successful in higher ed and especially to in study abroad where we're we want students to tell us. We, we want that disclosure to happen. I think that an area that I've seen a lot of change in the last couple of years is related to mental health and psychological uh, disability and the willingness of students to disclose that. And I think there's a lot of data to support that, You know, especially in study abroad. If I look at the longitudinal data for reporting of mental health, you know, in the last 10 to 12 years, we've seen a 15% increase in disclosure of that across all students in terms of, you know, the share of disclosures that students might be presenting. So it's definitely growing. I think that, you know, young students in particular, those that are transitioning from high school into higher ed, they need to be well coached on disclosure and, you know, that it is indeed their responsibility as an adult learner. I know that some of us might uh, argue that idea of adult learner of an 18-year-old, but truly and legally that is the case when they turn 18 and then they come to a higher ed institution. They have to be proactive about going to disability services and registering their accommodation. And that process is a formalized one, and it's not one that can be done retroactively. And so I think that we need to continue to educate students about that difference as they're transitioning into higher ed, that there is, they do have more responsibility in that than maybe they would have experienced in, you know, their accommodation plan that would have been built out for them in the K through 12 situation. One of the challenges for many of us is that that they they don't understand that they need to disclose until later on. And there, there are limitations as, well, as to what we can do, both in the classroom and study abroad, when we're when it's happening after the fact, and so it's it really is you know that situation I described earlier where a student is starting to see that outcomes really aren't that positive, and then you know it's the end of the semester and they're saying they're disclosing, and I can't go back and and reoffer the course for that student, and that's that's not the way that it works in higher ed, and so helping them to really understand that difference and that transition for our younger students is is really important. And often that conversation happens well before they come into international programs and study abroad. And and that really is a responsibility of, across campus and not just in our area to remind students of, of what their role in this needs to be for higher ed and how they need to perhaps modify their behaviors as part of that. One place where I know things can get tricky is when a student is in a situation where their accommodation is recognized here in the United States but that same need is not recognized formally or recognized differently overseas. I'll give an example that I know has come up often in case it's helpful for our listeners. We might have a case where, where a student utilizes a service animal here in the US, but their program host country views that service animal differently. How could our colleagues best support, advise, or advocate for students in the case of service animals? You know, even in the U.S. context, uh, when it comes to animals, the difference between what is formally considered a service animal as compared to something that might be designated as an emotional support animal, those aren't necessarily considered the same thing. They're not necessarily supported in the same way, and they're not necessarily protected through litigation and ADA in the same way. And so even that distinction in the United States, I think many people will see animals that are designated as emotional support 
and see them as some as equivalents to a support or a service animal. Service animal being the the true designator of a, a protected accommodation. And so I think that that's even inside the United States when it comes to animals, this is this is a, a space where a, a distinction needs to be made for people often. It's a challenging situation and we have no control truly of the protections of foreign governments. We have no control over the policies of our foreign or host institutions. And so those are areas where certainly we would typically with a student with a service animal, that's one where disclosure happens because it is visible, right? They, they would have come into our office. We would have been able to see that this is something that we're talking about. And that matching process and advising is where that's probably most critical. What are the countries that we know are going to be more supportive or have laws or protections that are sim- more similar to ours? What are the organizations where we know that we have strong relationships and that they have similar policies and philosophies to ours when it comes to accommodation? And so that matching process is really important. Students who also have animals are going to need to consider also that there are going to be quarantines and other rules and regulations for entry of those animals. And so that might weigh into the decision about destination as well. Are they going to need to be separated from that animal for any period of time? Or is there more of a through process for that animal? And even daily navigation of that student, what are the challenges that we need to be considering related to access and daily life? I mentioned earlier, you know, some of these cities are very old cities, cobblestones, not a lot of elevators, those kinds of things. Do we need to be weighing all of that? Is it something else entirely? Um, You know, often, for example, we see that service animals are being attached to conditions like epilepsy, where they're able to predict an, an oncoming seizure. And so how do we sort of navigate that for the student? What kind of different resources are going to be necessary for them? And so in some ways, I cautiously say that that's an accommodation that we would know about fairly quickly soon. The student would probably know that they need to disclose and seek guidance for that kind of situation. In many ways, that might be an easier student to deal with because we know it. Back to this conversation, ongoing, repetitive conversation about disclosure. It's easier to disclose that those students are well-trained in disclosure, um, whereas others that are quote-unquote hidden, those can sometimes be a little bit harder to deal with because this might not know. How common would you say disabilities are? The data would tell us the census of people reporting disabilities in 2022, which is the most recent data that we have available, is about 13% of our entire U.S. civilian population reports some form of disability. Now, that equates to about 40 million people who are over the age of 25 who are reporting some kind of disability in their daily life. If we translate that into students who are pursuing higher ed, you know, that results in about 21% or a little bit more than 8 million people who are holding a bachelor's degree or higher who are reporting a disability. So if we sort of back out from that data, you know, that really goes to show that in about 21% of our undergraduates and about 11% of our grads in U.S. higher education are reporting some kind of disability or accommodation need in their degree. That number is certainly higher for our student veterans. And so they're reporting much higher levels of disability or need for access than our more traditional undergraduates. That compares to about, you know, 38% of those that are not reporting their disability, which Typically, that would mean that there are a number of students who are have a diagnosis and they would be eligible for accommodation, but aren't reporting it through the higher ed, you know, formalized system. 
which is really challenging. Really, only about 8% of our students are registering their disability on campus. So I think what that needs to show is that there's, when we talk about hidden disabilities, oftentimes we're using that terminology for referencing a disability that's not visually available to us, that's, that we don't know immediately that a student could hide. I think in this case, we could expand that beyond students who have a disability that's not visible to us, but then also isn't being disclosed at any point in the process, which is is quite challenging. For those of us in the field, I think that means that we really need to be thinking about the students that have known disabilities to us, um, as well as those who are completely unknown to us and, and for whatever reason are deciding to continue in their life and in their degree without disclosing their disability. We've talked a lot about the importance of working across campus and the importance of that partnership with the Office of Disability Services. But I want to extend this conversation to faculty. What advice would you give to faculty who may be listening and study abroad offices who work with them to prepare them to be course leaders about working with students with disabilities? In some ways, our faculty might have more training than we're giving them credit for, particularly if they're really in the classroom on campus with a lot of frequency because they are regularly interacting with those accommodation letters that come from student for students from our student disability office. They are probably often more attuned to that than than we give them credit for. The way that we need to work with them for our international programs is how does that translate outside of the classroom? Typically, when we're talking about faculty, we're sort of narrowing the scope of activity to our faculty-led programs. And I would always start with the same sort of questions that I would ask them on campus. You know, are there ways in which you could modify your syllabus? your deliverables, the ways in which you're assessing learning to be more accessible. So is there anything already in the syllabus related to their academic performance or how you're going to assess their grade that could be modified to be more universally accessible to students? And so that's always, you know, question number one. That's the one that the minute you ask it, they will have had other conversations on campus about that. So could you modify the environment? Could you modify the test taking if that's part of your syllabus? You know, what kind of modifications are out there that you are already familiar with? The ones that would be more specific to this are typically related to environment. The environment has now changed. We're not typically in study abroad. We're not teaching in a classroom, right? With a four-walled, no-windowed space with a whiteboard and, you know, projector. That's not typically our environment when we've taken students abroad. So what do we need to be thinking about? Are they related to physical disability? And we need to be thinking about those kinds of accommodations that are going to occur in the natural environment. Are they learning disabilities where we need to be thinking differently about how we might be presenting information, right? Oftentimes we are having open dialogue in a space that might be a bus. Is it hard to hear in that bus? Is it hard to retain information when you're not able to see it visually and hear it audibly? Is that a challenge? Um, if a student has an accommodation for recording their lectures and academic conversations, are you having conversations that maybe that feels less comfortable now because you're talking about topics that are uh, perhaps controversial? What does that sort of look like for the student and what does that look like for the faculty? And so how can we sort of pull along and again, understand what that disclosure and what those reasonable accommodations are? Our student disability services, and I'm sure that others do this as well, the letter for what is an eligible accommodation is quite 
clear. And so knowing in advance what those classroom environment modifications might need to be are, are pretty clear to us. And so it's really just extending that and that, you know, okay, we're not in that traditional classroom space anymore. What does it look like now? Our field is so interconnected and none of us has to go it alone. I want to highlight briefly our health and safety team here at World Strides, led by Robin Relaford, who's a friend of the pod. Our team has five full-time staff and a dedicated accessibility team. The A team, as we call them, endeavors to be very responsive to student needs and to protect student privacy. But ours is just one model. When deciding who to partner with, what are some questions universities should be asking to ensure that the infrastructure is in place to support students on partner programs? You said it all, partnership. It needs to be a partnership. In many cases, beyond those that we're talking about right now with access for disabilities, you're going to have to call on that partner. And if you don't have the relationship in place to to make that phone call and to know who to call and to trust that they share the same values that you do, it, it's it's not going to be a good thing. And so I think really thinking about that partnership and are they indeed a partner with you in this endeavor? I think too, particularly in the case of ability and ability status, that Partnership can lend so many resources that are hard to deliver yourself because you're not on site. And so I think particularly whenever you're doing that matching process for students with different abilities, understanding what kind of resources are available and which ones you might really need is absolutely critical. And, you know, if I think about, for example, our relationship with uh, ISA World Strides, that means that we have on the ground support through the study centers and they can pull along and build in add-on services that may not be available through the partner. You know, you you asked earlier about this situation where maybe the local law doesn't regulate that your host institution offer certain kinds of accommodations. Well, guess what? Maybe your site does that tutoring services, the, you know, translation services, the on the ground support, frequent monitoring, you know, all of those, those contexts, there was relationships those are things that they can help you mitigate. And you're not there, especially for a full semester, you can't be there. And so you have to trust and lean into the partner relationship and the partner resources that are available to that. My experience too is that when we've needed these and we've been and we have we have collaborated on this exact situation more than once, you can understand, okay, that matching process. I know that I can make a phone call and say, okay, this is our student situation. We're not married to destination necessarily. Where can we maneuver? Where do we see as like our top destination for providing these services and accommodations? And then we can go into curriculum matching from there. So sort of rank ordering priority for that student and then finding that match and using your relationship and partnership to do that, knowing that they can often provide services that you may not be as easily able to. Many of our listeners would like to grow their knowledge base to better support students with disabilities. Other than this podcast that we're recording right now, Sarah, um, what are some resources you'd like to highlight to help folks become more proficient and comfortable in their work in this area? Certainly, there are a lot of resources through your partnerships that I hope that professionals are leveraging. You know, you've mentioned this podcast, for example, there are others that are available, blogs and others that I think that students and student professionals should be accessing. I mentioned just now, not just student professionals, students. Um, mm. This idea of self-advocacy is really important and helping students to understand what are their rights and responsibilities and all of this 
is part of the battle as well. So I think considering how we're directing our professionals, but also our students to these resources is huge. This idea of partnership, I, I really, I can't stress it enough. Partnership with your relationships for the, the people, are, we, we use the terminology affiliates, our affiliate partnerships, you know, leveraging resources through them, leveraging resources through your student disability offices, leveraging resources through general counsel, you know, getting to know the people that are on and off your campus who really are content experts because you're going to bring a lot of expertise in one area. They've got expertise in another. That teamwork, that collaboration is really going to be helpful, particularly because, as I mentioned, these these regulations do change and the way that they're interpreted and applied do change. And so you might be an expert. That last case that came through your office, you might be an expert on what was the reg at that time. That might have changed and your other professionals are going to know what it is now. Um, and I think also there's a lot of resources available through the the different channels that we often access. Some of those are professional organizations. Some of those, however, they might be much more legal ease and less interesting content, but important to stay abreast of. Department of Education It's going to be very legal ease, can be very dry. You might have to get yourself a fresh cup of coffee, but sit down and read the regs. Inform yourself, educate yourself on what are the regs. IIE always has amazing up-to-date data to know, you know, what really is the volume of students that we're talking about for study abroad in general, but also those that we know from institutional reporting, you know, what is the volume of disability reports? What is the breakdown of those disability reports? You know, what are, what areas are we talking about? Are we talking about physical ability? Are we talking about learning ability? Are we talking about mental health, ADHD? You know, what are you most likely to encounter? Um, because we all have limited time and resources. We can't be experts on all of it. But if we know, for example, that, you know, 40% of the abilities, disabilities and accommodations that are going to be reported to us are in the area of mental and psychological health, then that's that's probably an area where you might want to spend more of your time educating yourself. So keeping up to date on what are the stats in the field so that you can really sort of, you know, be efficient with your training and then and then really sort of understand what is most likely to come down the pike. Thinking about things through that lens too, I mentioned IAE and the data that's available to them. They're also going to talk about top destinations. And, you know, not surprisingly, more than 70% of our students are still going into Europe. It's not a difficult link between physical environment, but those are perhaps also some of the countries that have the most progressive legislation related to learning ability. And so understanding, you know, where our students going and, and where there might be great opportunities, but also understanding where your challenges might lie. We're about out of time, Sarah, but I'd love to sort of wrap things up on a high note. What is a success story you would like to share? You know, Zach, this is the hardest question that you've asked me. <laughs> it's true because there's so many. How, how does, how do you choose just one? I've spent some time thinking about this and I, I guess I would call out maybe a success story related to this that I am really like pleased with and a student that's very dear to me. And I had the wonderful opportunity to, to really like observe his experience, even though it was not an easy one. This, this is a story that presented many challenges. And it's actually a story that I worked really closely with my colleagues at ISA in. This was a student who presented early and disclosed early. This was a student that came in as an early under, you know, lower classman 
And I knew that he wanted to study abroad and he gave me ample runway, gave us, myself and him, ample runway to to really work through his specific situation. And we worked closely with our colleagues at ISA to find a good destination that was going to be a good fit for him. And we did all the things, all the planning. We were great partners in all of this. And we thought that this was really beautifully ironed out, ready to launch the student only sort of late stage to realize that we were being presented with challenges from the host institution that were certainly upsetting to us, seemed to be a bit immovable from us. But what we did recognize in conversations with the host institution was that some of it was a language barrier, not in the sense that they didn't speak English, but instead in the sense that what we put on an accommodation letter is inclusive of every possible accommodation. And perhaps to the partner seemed quite overwhelming, this laundry list of things that the student needed. It wasn't a list of the things that the student needed. It was instead a list of what the student was eligible for. And those were different things. This student was an amazing advocate for themselves and recognizing that that list was probably bigger, not probably, was indeed bigger than what they actually needed and was able to communicate to us and to the partner that, listen, this is what I really need to be successful. This is what I need. And narrowed that list down. That was more palatable to the partner we were able to also sort of say, okay, within the scope of their visa, what we could probably do is maneuver our academic calendar a little bit more so that we're lessening the course load. Because what we don't want to do is say, well, we're shrinking the available accommodations, but oh, by the way, go jump into a full load of courses in a foreign environment. Um, So we were able to figure out what was the right combination of academic coursework for that student. And we very closely monitored him, myself and the ground team, monitor him very closely, provide tutoring services, all of those things. And it was a really, really successful outcome for that student. It was a wonderful semester with great academic outcomes. I had the joy and pleasure of this student going immediately from that study abroad to a study abroad that I was leading in Iceland. And so I got to spend 10 days with him afterwards to really get a full debrief on the full situation, which that almost never happens. That was just, you know, the cherry on top. And he's such a positive outcome. He's graduated now. And I'm still in touch with him frequently. And despite the hurdles and the challenges, you know, the work, the front work, you think you have it all dealt with all just, you have snowplowed a beautiful, smooth path for the student and then challenges come up. And yet we still were able to have a really, really great outcome for the student. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Sarah Easler. as you think about education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? Student interest is up. It was a rough couple years there for international education. It just felt like hurdle, hurdle, hurdle. But student interest is up. Uh, in fact, we are we have so many students we can't even hardly keep up right now, which is such a wonderful problem to have. And so we are trying very hard to keep up with the students. I could focus easily on the on the things going on in the world that make our jobs harder and I probably don't need to name those. Anybody listening to a podcast like this probably knows exactly what I'm talking about, you know war, conflict, disaster, all of these things. Um, and yet, I, if I were to spend that, I guess I would say that the, the world gives us really a lot of reasons why our jobs are so important. And I think 2024 is going to present us with that. What we do is critical to the world. And I, I do think that we are chipping away at 
increasing tolerance and compassion worldwide because it gives our students a chance to see that, yeah, we are beautifully different from our citizens of the world all over the place, but we are also incredibly similar in a variety of different ways. I think it helps our students to not first go to this idea of othering. And so in a world that really is trying to divide us, I do think study abroad brings us together and all of these challenges only make that more important and solidifies all of the reasons why we have to keep doing this work for our students and for a better world. The work continues. I can't imagine a better place to end things than right here. Sarah Easler, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I personally have learned a ton in this past hour. And, and thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics on international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.